0: So we're going to make a bit of a gear shift change as we come to God's Word. So I'm going to just ask you just to bear with me. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment? Just place your hands on your lap in front of you and open them up. in Like a kind of sign of receiving. If you don't mind, just, just bear with me. People aren't looking around, so it's a very private moment. It's so key to understand that as we come to God's Word, that there's a real partnership that's happening here. I come to preach God's Word God's spirit is here to make it relevant to us. But a very, very key part of it is that you are prepared to receive what God is saying to you right now. This is not a moment to be a spectator or to sit back passively and just to watch the show. It's a real moment where you engage and are intentional to listen to God's word word to you. So I'm going to give you just 20 seconds just to be be sure that you're engaged with God as we come to His, his word in a moment. Lord help us to hear what you have to say More than that Help us Lord God to receive And to live what you are saying to us now In these moments we pray for Jesus sake Amen Thank you One of the toughest chapters of my life happened about ten years ago in our church. For those that have been around long enough, you remember those moments very clearly. It was one of those experiences that all of us fear ever happening to us in in a church context. It's one of those moments that has very little glory about it, even in retrospect, even even ten years later. Thanks, Moria. Instead, as I I think back to that chapter in my life, my my mind is again filled with genuinely many painful and gut-wrenching moments and regrets. It's a horrible period. Essentially, for those that weren't here, two of our senior pastors, both men that are highly loved and respected, came to a point in which, relationally, they couldn't work together any longer. And within a period of about three months, both of them resigned from the church and headed off their separate ways was, to say the least, a horrible period of time for everyone involved. I've often said that it was the closest that I think I've ever come to experience what I think a traumatic divorce must be like, or must feel like. Obviously, I'm not saying it it, it was a divorce experience. I think that's much more intimate. But it's the closest I've ever come to experiencing how horrible that must be. And to make, make matters worse, it, it all happened in the context of a church full of people that loved these two guys. And so camps developed, and arguments erupted, and accusations were thrown, and sleepless nights became the norm, and for the next about probably three years, and I'm honest when I say this, for probably the next three years, it was something that many of us thought about, prayed about, and tried to process on a daily basis. It's a shameful thing to admit, but I'd have to say that in many respects the church was neither a safe space nor a godly space during that period of time. And I guess that must always be a, a very humbling reminder to us that a ter- attend church regularly, both the staff and the congregation, that we don't have our act together. All of us have the capacity to go from saint to sinner in just a brief moment, and it's only the grace of God, I believe, that keeps us from doing that more regularly. At some point in all this chaos, I was appointed to be the senior pastor at the church. It's, it's, it's my one brief glorious moment in John's seat. and I can say in all honesty, John, you can keep it. By God's grace, over the next couple of months and years, the staff and those that stuck around, and let me just say, those that stuck around, you will always have a very, very precious place in my heart um, for doing that. But the staff and those that stuck around were able to navigate those hectic times, and the rest, as they say, is history. But one conversation that happened during that time stands out for me above any advice that I received. And, and there's a, there was a lot of support that was happening in the midst of the t- tough times. But this particular bit of advice came from Peter Fadnikak, one of the pastors in the Westfall area. And Cindy and I we were just looking for a little bit of respite, and we went to him as a bit of a father, pastoral father figure, and he was busy speaking to us and, and kind of counseling us. I remember just sitting in his office feeling very raw and exposed at everything that was going on. And in the conversation, he quoted one line of a poem, and it's a line that has stuck with me ever since. Allow me to read just the first stanza of that poem that also contains that one line. It's, it's called The Second Coming by a guy named W.B. Yeats. Don't be fooled by the name. It isn't, he isn't a Christian, I- This is what he says. He says, turning and turning in the widening Gaia, which is just another word for spiral, turning and turning in the widening Gaia, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The the blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. There's so much about that poem that describes very appropriately what was going down in our church at that time. But Peter looked up to me and he said, Rich, in all the chaos, your center must hold. Your center must hold. It was for me a very powerful and prophetic moment I left there that day knowing I couldn't control the chaos, the coming and going of people. I couldn't control the misunderstandings of people's communication. I couldn't control the disappointment that people had towards God. But I did know that I needed to protect the center of my being from condoning or from entertaining or from practicing the corruption that fills this world of ours. And in that instance, it was filling the church. The question I have for you this morning is this. If I just say to you, your center must hold, where do you go with that? What is it that you would bring to mind as the center that mustn't fade or diminish or disintegrate, that needs to hold you? What is the center that needs to anchor you in this unpredictable and hectic world of ours? And that's a crucial question, isn't it? I mean, every adult in our church will know that the volatility of our country demands that we answer that question. In fact, every new phase of life that comes with a whole new set of challenges, every temptation that we grapple with, every stressful work scenario or sad and disappointing family experience, it feels at times that at every turn in life we'll find another critical reason to answer the question, what does it mean for my center to hold? If we were to go around the room, I reckon we'd receive a whole bunch of names given to describe the center of our being. Some of us would call it our character. You know, that, that is the area that must hold strong in tough times. No matter what happens, I'll always be and we give a, almost a character reference. I'll always be honest, I'll always be faithful, I'll always be loyal. It's a character that must hold mustn't change during tough times. Others, possibly those that are more used to using spiritual language, would say it's their soul or their spirit or their faith that is at the center of who we are. Scripture in Proverbs 4 verse 23 seems to indicate that it's our heart that is at the center of our existence. That verse says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Our heart... Whatever that is, our heart is the birthplace of our experience of life. It's the birthplace of our perspectives, our passions, our responses, and so on. Everything emerges from the depths of our heart, according to that verse. So that's what we need a God. To be 100% honest, I don't mind how you describe that center of your being. I I don't think that's the issue here. I don't mind what you call it. If you call it any of those names, they honestly seem like much of the sameness to me. There's so much in my mind of overlap between the idea of my soul and my heart that to try to distinguish a clear difference between the two would I think be just a bit of a waste of time. So I don't mind what you call it. I think the much more pressing question is actually not how we describe the center of being, but rather how we intend to hold it. Or to put it in the language of that proverb, how do we actually go about guarding our heart? I think that's the most important question. At this point, I'd like to introduce a word that I think will take us quite a way into answering that question. And I'll be careful to explain why I say that a little bit later. And that is the word, doctrine. Now, admittedly, some words just make us want to cringe. Dentist. Some people have got a real thing about moist. Lobotomy. Just sounds horrific, you know? Now, I reckon for many people, the word doctrine is one of those words. Doctrine. Blah. Maybe it's because it's so closely related to the word indoctrinated. And so by association, we hate the word from the outset. Or maybe it just conjures up pictures of horribly strict judgmental theologians. Let's be honest, if we try to imagine the poster child of someone who loves doctrine, it's really hard to imagine imagine a very good picture. But whatever your gut response is to the word doctrine, let me just say right from the outset, folks, few things will hold your soul safe and sound as much as a correct doctrine will. Or to put it another way, there will be a price to pay for ignorance about the correct doctrines. We're going to explore that idea a little bit more. And I'm going to use four questions during the sermon just to kind of probe that that, 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 um, idea a little bit bit deeper. So the first question I'm going to ask is, what is doctrine? I mean, let's get that out of the way. What is doctrine? What does doctrine look like? What is it that we're actually talking about? Dictionary.com describes it like this. A body or system of teachings relating to a particular subject. body or systems of teachings relating to a particular subject. This is what I think it looks like, though. If you take one belief about a particular subject, plus another, add another belief about that same subject, add add another belief about that same subject, and you can carry on as long as you want. If you add the sum total of those beliefs up, you have come to the point of saying this is your doctrine about a particular subject. It's as simple as that. One belief plus another plus another, the sum total of those beliefs equals your doctrine about some kind of subject. So, so for instance, if I were to ask you, what is your doctrine about Jesus? Most of you, many of you, I'm sure, would say, I don't have a doctrine about Jesus, or at least I've never really thought in those terms. So I back off a little bit and I say, let's rather just speak about Jesus. And during the conversation, you started to say things like, you believe Jesus is good, that he's loving, that he's wise. maybe may even show in the fact that you believe he's the Son of God. And I'd say that that is a fantastic list of truths about Jesus. But more than that, I'd say that you've actually just spoken out your doctrine of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. So, we can take that definition to a number of areas. What is your doctrine of sin? In other words, what do you believe is sin? When is a sin committed? What does the Bible say about sin? What is your doctrine of sin? What is your doctrine of playfulness? What are your beliefs about playfulness? What is your doctrine about family dynamics? What is your doctrine about forgiveness? You might say, well, for instance, forgiveness is always dependent on someone asking for it. Okay, that's your starting point. You might also say forgiveness has different stages to it. Starts off with just being able to look at the person again. Then maybe at a later stage you can sit in their presence. Then a conversation, maybe coffee, I don't know, somewhere along the line. And so it's got these different stages that it goes through. Forgiveness, you might say, is not always deserved and yet it's often given. And if you add, add those beliefs about forgiveness together, what you've just done is you've stipulated, you declared your doctrine of forgiveness. So make no mistake. Whatever we've called it, whether or not we've called it that, every one of us holds deeply to a set of doctrines about, doctrines about just about everything in life. They are the foundational truths. They are the foundational blocks around which our worldview is built. That is what doctrine is. Second question, how do we arrive at a doctrine? How do we arrive at a doctrine? Let me start by saying it's very important to know that Christians arrive at their doctrine from a unique source, from a unique angle. Yeah. This is a massively important th- thing to understand. This is, this is a, a crucially important thing to mark. We don't disregard the sources that many other people out there use to arrive at the doctrines that dominate their lives. We don't disregard them. Things like science and psychology and history and philosophy and culture and experience and family background, etc. Th- that's normally the things that people use to gather their doctrine of life. And we as Christians, we don't disregard those things because they've got important things to say, things that we often need to hear and learn from. At times, God uses these things to radically deepen our understanding of life, the universe, and everything. However, we do recognize a unique contributor, a unique source that we allow a very special place in guiding our thoughts on the important issues of life, and that is obviously God's word to us. We as Christians will often say, God says this or that about an issue. And a Christian doctrine, a, a, a Christian's doctrine, the Christian's worldview, the fundamental building blocks of our understanding about this world will always have a taste, will always have a sense of God speaking into it, of God forming our worldview. Folks, it's a massive pill to swallow. And, and so, for some of us, we're still trying to get it down our throat. And maybe this is a task of a lifetime for many of us. But it's a massive pull to swallow. But we we need to accept that the greatest commentary, the final authority, the ultimate commentary on the issues of life and our existence is to be found in moments with God when God speaks to us. It's not on YouTube. It's not in Google. It's not on the Twitter feed. It's not News 24. It's not in our textbooks. Moments with God, moments with God, listening to and discovering His perspective on things will contain, will contain the most powerful moments of understanding that we'll ever be able to achieve. It's as simple as that. And the doctrines that shape our life must, must, must be coached by that truth that we receive from the Almighty. If we're ever foolish enough to allow doctrine to drift away from the word of God, we will compromise, I believe, nothing less than the very center of who we are. Third question. You must say we've got four. We're number three. What are the dangers? What are the pitfalls of doctrine? And I'd say at least there are three massive holes that people are likely to fall into around this topic of doctrine. Um, The first one is the ignorance is bliss approach. Let's be honest, it takes courage to say, I believe something nowadays. And we expose ourselves to so much criticism when we start to share the doctrines that God and govern our lives. It's much easier, it's much safer to just nowadays go with the flow, to be PC, to stay below the radar, and not to cause too many waves. And the way many Christians deal with the trauma of being nailed for their beliefs is often by choosing to stay ignorant the weirdest thing but I honestly believe that there are Christians out there that make this choice to stay ignorant and so we have people that have been in church for 10 years or more and I ask them about what their beliefs are around some of the most basic themes in the Bible and they'll soon say something to the effect of well I'm not really a theologian ignorance is bliss because it keeps us out of the public glare ignorance is also bliss when it gives me a, a permission to just go with my gut feel You know, if the biblical doctrine of forgiveness says that we should forgive someone over and over and over again, when in fact all I want to do is lash out at their perpetrator, all I need to do is remain ignorant of what the Bible says about forgiveness, and I'll be off the hook. God won't be able to challenge my character. He won't be able to stand up to my stubbornness, as long as I remain ignorant about what the Bible has to say about these things. And so I'll keep God at an arm's length. Just That makes life so much easier to live that way. Ignorance is bliss. The second downfall, the second hole that, that, that we can fall into in terms of theology and, and doctrine, it's the one that says, I can believe it but not live it. That weird approach. I can believe it but not live it. We have those Christians that think a, a correct doctrine is simply knowing what the Bible says about a particular topic. Ask him who Jesus is. And they'll be able to recite a mini-sermon about the nature and work of Jesus and, and many verses thrown in the mix. They're fantastic at listening, listing their beliefs about a certain topic. One bloke, a guy named Deal Moody, pointedly said this. He says, A rule I've had for years is to treat the Lord Jesus as a personal friend. He's not a creed, a mere doctrine, But it is He Himself that we have. Can you see the difference between simply agreeing to something mentally and actually agreeing with our whole life and heart? Doctrines are not true doctrines. Unless we can see them lived and experienced and pumping through the veins of those that say they believe them. To claim to believe in the biblical doctrine of forgiveness, for instance, and yet to hold on to hatred and bitterness is evidence enough that there is no genuine appreciation for that doctrine. Maybe a level one appreciation of that doctrine. And it's into this zone that sadly the accusation that so many people throw at Christians that we are hypocrites becomes a reality and people turn away from Christ in their thousands and millions because people claim something to be true and yet they obviously are living something else. Another guy puts it this way. He says, no matter how fancy and metaphysical a doctrine sounds, it was a human experience at first. I loved that. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ, in other words, the godhood of Christ, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, for instance, the place it began was not in the, in the word process of some fourth century Greek theologian, but in the experience of basically untheological people who had known Jesus of Nazareth and found something happening to their lives that had never happened before. Then he says this, unless you can somehow participate yourself in the experience that lies behind the doctrine, simply to subscribe to it doesn't mean much. It's fundamentally important to understand. And then he adds one more proviso, which I think is also crucial. I haven't had time to preach it, but listen to it in the one sentence. Sometimes I ever Simply to subscribe to a doctrine is the first step towards experiencing the reality that lies behind it. Also very wise. Third third little hole that that I think people often fall into when it comes to this issue of doctrine is, is, is the issue of arrogance. Arrogance. It seems to me that knowledgeable Christians are often unteachable. They lack humility, and basically, their knowledge has made them ugly and unapproachable people. Jesus called them stiff necked. And I can't think of a better, a better word. Like, like, I believe this, and I, I'm not going to be teachable. I won't look to the left or right. I won't get any like, accountability or anybody to teach me. I'm just going to keep this tunnel vision stiff necked. They suspect they know what the Bible says about something, and then they close shop. They make it clear that nothing and no one is able to teach them anything more about the subject. I think that's pure arrogance. Must be very careful of that approach to our doctrine. It strikes me that, that to be a student of life. No matter what your qualification, no matter your age or experience, no matter your accomplishments, to be a student of life is something that the book of Proverbs and many other passages in Scripture encourages us to be over and over and over again, to have a healthy dose of humility as we hold to our doctrines of life. To give up on the calling to be a learner simply isn't part of God's scheme of things. If you're following my outline, we're now going to go to the fourth and last question that's kind of helping helping us to probe this issue of doctrine. Fourth question. Why is doctrine important? What is the worth of doctrine? Christians need to be people of character and conviction, don't we? There needs to be a strength about our presence, a backbone to who we are as Christians. Backbone that challenges some of the doctrines that this world would want us to buy into. So, the world out there says, for instance, it asks, for instance, if it isn't hurting anyone, then why does it matter? The world out there says the most important thing in the world is family. The world out there says if the country is failing, bolt. The world out there says, cover your back first. These are the kinds of doctrines that many of us will encounter on a daily basis at school and work and on the sport field. And the question needs to be asked, will we buy into these doctrines? Will we adopt them as the core truths that will define our lives? Or will we honestly open ourselves to the God who speaks and allow Him to mold our attitudes and our passions and everything we are, the way we see things and who we will become? So that when a moment erupts in our church, like the kind that happened ten years ago, or something painful happens in your home or or in your workplace, will that searching moment reveal people this time around whose lives are defined by God's, God's heart, by God's measure of forgiveness, but gentleness and wisdom that comes from Him, or will we simply look like a bunch of nice people trying to do their best in a difficult time? Would not you just watch this video on screen for a few seconds,
1: a few minutes. As the nation marks the anniversary this week of the Newtown, Connecticut school shooting, families of some of the 26 who were killed attended a vigil today at the National Cathedral in Washington. Prayers were offered for all of the victims of gun violence in this country, and that would include the five young Amish girls who were killed and five who were wounded just a few years ago in south-central Pennsylvania. Jeff Glor tells us that out of the horror of that school shooting has come a lesson in forgiveness. I mean it's been seven years since Terry Roberts life changed forever in October 2006 her 32 year old son Charlie walked into an Amish school in Lancaster County and shot 10 young girls before killing himself
2: I heard the sirens and saw helicopters then the phone was ringing and it was my husband and he said I need you to come to Charlie's house right away and I got out of the car and I looked at my husband and these sunken eyes just saying it was charlie that could not be and yet it truly was it was true it was our son
1: roberts initial reaction was that she had to move away but the amish came to her house the night of the shooting to say they wanted her to stay some of the victim's families attended her son's funeral
2: there are not words to describe how that made us feel that day and then for the mother and father that had lost not just one but two daughters at the hand of our son to come up and be the first ones to greet us wow is there anything in this life we shouldn't forgive
1: Terry Roberts now shares this message with those who have experienced trauma and every Thursday she cares for the most seriously wounded survivor of the shooting now 13 it's against Amish beliefs to appear on camera so Donald Craig often speaks on their behalf well you have this mother who raised a son that did this horrific damage to this young woman and the mother has the courage and the spiritual fortitude to come back and to care for this uh, young woman and the parents of the young woman welcome her into their home it's a powerful powerful story those families in Newtown who may still have understandably conflicted feelings now still less than a year later what do you what do you say to them
2: ask God to provide new things in your lives new things to focus on and that doesn't take the place of what is lost but it can give us a hope and a future
1: a future made possible for Terry Roberts because of forgiveness Jeff Brewer, CBS News, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania.
0: I think we all saw it clearly in that video. There's a depth of understanding about the doctrine of forgiveness that goes way beyond a mere nod of the head that forgiveness is a nice thing. And that's the kind of doctrine, that depth of doctrine will hold you in tough times that will fold your life, not only in the tough tough times, but in the great times with more meaning and significance than you'll ever find elsewhere. Because that kind of doctrine will tie you tightly and hold you close to the Heavenly Father. Look, there is a price for ignorance. There is a price. The price is that we will look like and behave like everyone else in Westworld. The price for ignorance. When the world gets angry, we'll get angry as well. When the world gives up, we'll just we'll just mirror it. When the world lashes out, we will too. Bottom line, when our responses, standards and conduct are simply an echo of the world that we live in, then something is incredibly wrong with our Christianity. There's a verse that God brought to me a little while back that has seemed to speak to a number of situations i found myself in recently. 2 Peter 1, verse 5 to 8. Listen to what this verse says. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance. To perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love or if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to just imagine wearing the title of being an ineffective and unproductive Christian. Imagine that title being appropriately applied to your Christian walk. Ineffective, unproductive. Surely there's something in us that says no man. That's not the kind of Christianity I want to live. Ineffective, unproductive. That's leilig stuff. That must sit like badly with us if it actually is a title that fits for us. And so what the, the writer Peter does is he, he constructs this list and he says, if you have this stuff and, and have it increasing measures, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. And he starts with, with, with goodness. You know, I'm, I'm surrounded in this congregation by good people, mostly. You know? <laughs> Good people. Good people. I think we can tick that one off. The next thing, That's on his list is knowledge. The next thing is knowledge. An understanding of the things of God that will keep us strong to face the rest of the list. An understanding of the things of God that will guide us into the rest of the list. The pursuit of doctrine. Is a pursuit of knowledge, not simply a pursuit of of, of, of a, an understanding in our mind, but a knowledge that is lived in every day of our life. The doctrines of God that will form our lives, that will that will temper our tough times, that will fill our great times with more significance. Just want to wrap up by saying, very practically in the next couple of weeks, and hopefully it will become a habit for your life, very practically. just want you to be aware of God forming your thoughts in life. As you come to His Word, as you wait on Him on a daily basis, God will be speaking to you about different issues in life. He will be addressing the doctrines that dominate your life. If you hold them tightly to your chest and say, God, these are inaccessible to you, well, that's your choice. Rather I'd suggest, make them available to God and say, God, interrogate the doctrines that 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 dominate my life. Turn to Him to deepen your life by deepening your understanding of Him. And then lastly, just to say, we'll be helping you thrash through this issue of doctrines over the next couple of weeks. We've got three more weeks around the issue of doctrine. And what we're going to do is we're going to address three different topics for these three weeks. And just getting to grapple with some of the doctrine around. The first one's a little bit of a surprising doctrine. Um, but it's one of those that we've, I can honestly say, this kind of congregation, we've shelved it for many years and hardly have ever gone back to it to think it through. Be here next week to hear it. Um, and then we got two more after that so God bless you as you revisit the doctrines that dominate your life, those funda- fundamental building blocks why don't you uh, close in prayer for us thank you